Uh, we have a couple of dogs. One of them is a little dog. And typically when we let the little dog out to do the little dog business, okay, I let him out, I'll go brush my teeth, pour myself something to drink, something. He goes out, does what he needs to do. I'll check at the door. He'll come back eventually. I'll let him in. Well, as cold as it has gotten, I can't do that. Because I've let him out, and I go brush my teeth. By the time I come back, he is literally crying outside the door. And his feet are in pain. And he comes in, and he's just shaking. And then i got to pick him up in a blanket, wrap him up, hold him for five minutes till he warms up and realize, I can't keep doing this. And after about two or three times of brutalizing this dog in the cold, I came to realize there's only one way to walk the dog in this winter. I have to stand at the door. So now I'm devoting... Two to three times a day, depending on which of us let our, are, are there to let the dog out. I'm devoting time out of my life to watch this dog do this dog thing. Okay, this is what the winter has brought me to. And you have to understand what we're dealing with. You walk outside our door, and uh, you walk outside the door, and you, there's first a step, and then there's another step before you get down to ground level. And then I do not spend my life shoveling this out. I'll be honest with you. There's a drift blows in every year right across our walkway. So we walk over it. Occasionally I break a path through it, depending on what it is. But there's a drift. So it goes step, step, ground, under the ground, drift. And then beyond that, Robbie Anderson keeps it very nicely cleared out. So, so that's all great. And the winter is driving me so batty that I realized... That is, we have this thing called wind chill factor, right? Which is a factor of two things. Temperature and wind. And we determine how cold it really is based on wind chill. I realized you could come up with another scale. You could call it the chihuahua chill factor. You see, because when it's 30 below and down, all right, goes off that first step right on the porch, all right, boom, takes care of business, jumps right back in. At 20 below, he'll go down one, down to the next at ground level. Jump off, jump back in. At 10 below, he'll jump down one, jump down another ground level, and then walk along the, the uh, area there, maybe even go along the house a little bit, and do his circling thing till he finds the perfect spot, right? So there we are. Then you get to about zero, and he goes through the path to the other side of the drift and finds his place out there. You get about 10 above, and he starts wandering out far enough that I could lose him at night in the dark. And I thought, you could really set up a, a, a chihuahua chill scale to say, well, if he's just hopping out and coming back, you know, it's cold outside, right? It's like the wind chill, and we call it the chihuahua chill factor. Well, that's how crazy the winter has made us. Or at least it's made me. But there is one thing that I thought about as I watched this little guy and the different progressions that he made, and that is simply this. He kind of illustrates for us how the book of Acts is set up. Because the book of Acts is established in its early going very simply on a progression and a, f- a further and further progression from an initial point. So I hope to make that clear to you this morning as we start in our time in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And by the way, I have a, the new contacts in today. They're the last level of contacts I can be given, and after that I don't, can't use contacts anymore. So we'll see if they work. All right, we'll see. If, there, if you see me stumbling, it's not that I've forgotten how to read, I just can't see. 
So I just wanted you to be aware of that. And we're reading this. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now let me just first make this quick note. When we see that the author is writing to this one named Theophilus, that immediately ties us back to Luke's gospel, and these are both written by Luke. Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, addresses it, uh, that former account that he refers to is the book of Luke. So we have both of these with which to work, and uh, he makes it very clear that what he describes, I think it is a, just an interesting statement that he says he's suffering by many infallible proofs. That what people saw in Jesus Christ were proofs to what exactly God was doing at that time during uh, the redemptive history that was going on there. All right, so we've tied it back to Luke. Picking it up in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. And that was a continual question that was revolving around. If he is indeed the Christ, when is he going to set up the promised kingdom and restore to Israel its own sovereignty in its own land? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There is a progression that he sets forth that is going to take place when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them. And so we have it set forth for us by, by what he has said here as a, if you will, a geographical progression to begin with but I want to look at a couple other elements relative to, to the progression. But the verse we're keying in on is verse 1-8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses to be in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And I would like us just to note this. If you like to fill in the bulletin, God's power is for God's purpose. God's power is for God's purpose. And God's purpose is defined in this progression, this geographical progression that he lays out. Jerusalem is where they are. Judea is the area around them. Samaria is the next area north that has some uh, mixed people among them, so much so that that the devoted Jew did not like to come through Samaria. They would circle around it and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And you see this progression that is set forth. Now, as we look at the book of Acts, if you've never read it before, I wanted to point this simple thing out. If you've never read the book of Acts, 
Here is a framework from which you might tackle it. It would be an interesting thing for you in your own reading to just go, oh, I see. It starts here and it moves out. I wonder if I can see that. And if you will read the book of Acts, pay attention to some some, uh, maps that are probably in the back of your Bible or find one somewhere, get a Bible that has them, and the book will begin to make a whole lot more sense just in terms of geographically. Because what is happening in the book of Acts is happening in real places, in real time, space, history. And it's a way to start. It's a way to see things. So the simplest of outlines that we might give this in our, to begin our study is there's the witness to Jerusalem. And that goes from chapter 1, verse 9, on through chapter 8, verse 3. And then there's the witness to Judea and Samaria. That's chapter 8, verse 4, on to chapter 12, verse 25. Then the witnesses to the ends of the earth begins in chapter 13, verse 1, moves to the very end of the book. And by that point, we're dealing with a a man by the name, he came to us first known as Saul, and he was literally, he describes himself as a persecutor of the church until in his attempts to, to bring persecution to the church on the road to Damascus, he is confronted by the risen Christ. And beginning in chapter 13 and on to the end of the book, he is the greatest missionary the world has ever known. And he winds up his journey at the end of, of uh, Acts chapter 28. We find him. He is in Rome. And so we understand this tracks how the gospel came. Let's see. Looking at this, we'll go this way with it. How it came up north out of Israel, and then it went towards Rome, which was the center of the world as they knew it at that time. So it was moving in that direction. But understand also, as it's moving out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost ends of the earth, there are others going in other directions. We have recorded for us how it went towards Rome through the person of Paul. So it is, you get this, this progression, this geographical progression in our thinking. I also think it might not hurt us just to make note of the fact that there is, it's not given for us in this, in, in this geographical outline here, but, but just if you're going to go through, you're going to read the book of Acts and you want to study it on your own, There's some interesting things for us to consider in terms of a, not only a geographical progression, but a theological progression. Because there's all sorts of incredible things that are being worked out now, and that are being revealed, and that are being understood as God is taking the next step in revealing His entire redemptive work to mankind. So we come to Acts chapter 1. Verse 9, where we just, just following where we were, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, a cloud received him out of their sight, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, if you just pay a little bit of attention to that, you realize there's, there's some phenomenal theology that is rolled into what you just read. It's easy to just pass by it, and I'm saying, hey, take your time in reading the book of Acts. Think about this for a minute. One, this is further verification that Jesus is the Christ. 
This announcement, as, you, as they have watched him now, remember the many infallible proofs, this one who was put to death, raised again, many infallible proofs for 40 days that he had come back to life. Now he ascends. This is known as his ascension. When we studied in Hebrews, we learned he's sitting at the right hand of the Father until an appointed time when he will return. But this is another affirmation that this Jesus is the Christ. He alone, one and only, singular. We pick that up as we went through the Gospels, if you will remember. We also pick up not only some Christology right here, we pick up some eschatology. And that is that his establishing of the kingdom was not going to be immediate. Yes, he died, crucified, buried, raised again the third day. But this ascension and the announcement, I believe, by angels, this announcement that comes to him says, there is now a time frame that we do not know before he returns indeed to set up his kingdom. He will, but there's this time frame in between. And we know we don't know because he said it's not for us to know exactly what God has designed. So there's eschatology that is developing here and helping us understand we're going to need to wait. There also is, as you move through the book of Acts, some fascinating things relative to something which we would call soteriology. That has to do with the study of salvation. I'm throwing out these words. I'm not trying to impress you that I know these words. Okay, I'm trying to help you just understand that this is a way that we look at these things. Christology is about Christ. Eschatology, simply a word, the study of end times. Soteriology is the study of salvation and how God has defined, worked out, and do, making salvation known in time, space, history. And you get into Acts chapter 2, and you have this phenomenal, think of the depths of what Peter is saying here, in this major message that he brings. And he says in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching to a crowd of people who are gathered because of what's been taking place by the Holy Spirit of God coming upon them, He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now, how gutsy is that? He stands up and he says, look, this Jesus of Nazareth, he did all the things that were expected of Messiah. He did everything that was anticipated, and then he calls them as to which you are eyewitnesses. You know what I'm talking about. You saw it when he did it right here in front of you. There was no question as to what he did. These are those infallible proofs that Luke had referenced earlier. He did them in your midst, as you yourselves know, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And he goes on to quote David to explain that. But here's here's the point. He says to them, he had all these proofs, you know it, you watch it in front of you, and yet you still put him to death. Talk about gutsiness. But God raised him up. There's a magnificent statement that he put in there, though. Yes, you put him to death. And yes, God raised him up. But here's this. Him being delivered by the determined 
purpose and foreknowledge of God. There was no surprise here. When you did what you did, and it was real, and it was evil, and it was wrong, and you'll be held accountable for it, but when you did it, it fit precisely into God's eternal plan of redemption and how he was going to offer salvation to sinful mankind. And he wasn't caught by surprise. Magnificent truth that is there to understand how is this salvation thing working itself out. Then, there's a, at the end, there's another little thing that we learn, and this is something that we learn about ecclesiology. Don't get worried. I'm not trying to impress you. It simply is the study of the church. We are part of the church. And so people who study this, The church refers to the ecclesia, those called out. And so now we have ecclesiology. It's beginning to unfold before us in the book of Acts. We come to Acts chapter 2, the end of of, of Peter's sermon. And with many other words, in verse 40, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And I'm going to drop down a few verses to the end of chapter 2. It speaks about them being praising God, having favor with all the people, and then this magnificent statement. And the Lord added to the church... Daily, those who were being saved. Now, why is that significant? Because the church, as it's being birthed here in Acts chapter 2, did not exist that way prior to this time. God was at work prior to this. He's at work through the children of Abraham. And he had been in time, space, history, revealing himself through the children of Abraham. But now he is forming something new a new entity. And we're getting just some seed thought on that because it's going to take some other writings to flesh that out for us more. But here we have the church that is now on the scene and the church is going to have a significant role in this thing about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so there is this theological progression. We've got pneumatology, and that's the study of the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit is now available to believers. We see that earlier in Acts chapter 2. What I think is fascinating about this is that it, it appears to me, as you, as you read, it appears to me that there was a very hierarchical perspective you know, because you had to, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you had the, the, the lawyers, the scribes, and these were the, these were the spiritual ones, these were the powerful ones, these were the ones who were in the know, you know, and they would tell other people how to live and what they needed to do because they were way up here. Remember in the last time we were together about six months ago before winter hit, and we, uh, there was a guy who had been uh, born blind since birth, and... Uh, when they're asking, how did this happen? How did this happen? I'm telling you, Jesus put clay on my eyes and then this and that. And, and then, well, give us your opinion on what this guy was about. He said, don't you know? You're the ones who teach all this. You know, he's kind of prodding them a little bit, it seems like, to me. Because you're the ones who are supposed to know everything. But is it not wonderful that we learn that the Spirit of God now is going to indwell and be a part of everyone in the church. And that this hierarchical thing that kind of 
creates the haves and the have-nots. Now we all are partakers of his spirit. And, you know, nobody's like myself get to, get to join in and be a part of that. How wonderful is that? Acts chapter 10, here's another progression. Sociology, that's the best word I can come with for this. But when you get to Acts chapter 10, you're going to see that the Gentiles... We're going to become a part of God's redemptive program. And God has to do a very specific work on behalf of Peter. And some of you are familiar with that, with the net that comes down with all these unclean things. And, Peter, and God says, take and eat. In a dream, he says, never eat anything unclean. He says, don't call what I have made clean, unclean. And then he realizes later that God is getting his attention, that you need to view the Gentiles differently. And Gentiles are going to be welcomed into the church. And so that's a sociological thing, that breaking down these barriers that, uh, that are happening. So there's this theological progression, all this magnificent stuff that is also being made known in the book of Acts. And, it, and I just wanted to point that out because it goes beyond that, that framework of that outline. And then, I just, it's just kind of interesting, I just want to move through these quickly. There's also an editorial progression that you can follow in that there's a sequence of progress reports. See, what I'm trying to point out to you, it starts here in Jerusalem and it goes out from there. That's the point. And there's all this stuff that is moving out, a magnificent time in the history of the church and of God's redemptive work. And Luke records for us in chapter 2, verse 47. It says, The Lord added to their number daily those who are being Saved In chapter 6, verse 7, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Chapter 9, verse 31, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was strengthened. It was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 24, But the word of God continued to increase and spread. 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. 19.20, in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And then finally in 28.30 and 31, Paul, now he's all the way in Rome, Paul welcomed all who came to see him. He's under house arrest. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have these editorial comments saying, hey, here's what's going on here. Rather than simply announcing a fact or so-and-so said this or so-and-so went there, there are these little markers that say something was happening and God was at work. So we began by saying God's power is for God's purpose. And we're seeing that God's purpose includes progression it wasn't supposed to stay there in Jerusalem and either become this, this enclave where, hey, we protect ourselves here, or to just stay in Jerusalem until it eventually became irrelevant and died out. There was very much a determination. It was to start in Jerusalem and to move out from there until literally the entire earth had been reached. Phenomenal. Think about Jesus' parable about the kingdom of heaven. It's like that little mustard seed, and and it just grows, and it becomes something that is amazing in, in, in its impact. Now, if progression is God's purpose, power is a necessity. Remember, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. 
we need to understand we are not going to pull this off in our own strength. This is not something that we can say, hey, God wants progress to happen. Let's do this, and automatically it happens. The Spirit of God has to be involved. Acts chapter 3. We had this particular incident of a man, lame since birth, begging because he could not walk, so he could not go out and be productive in work. Sounds a little bit similar, doesn't it, to the guy who was blind and was begging. And so there he is. And now as the gospel moves forward, this is after Peter gives that magnificent message where he says, hey, you did it, but God had a purpose in it. Peter and James, they, uh, they uh, are, and Peter and John, rather, they come along, come across this guy. He's asking for alms. He's, they say to him, we got no money. We can't help you that way. But what we do have, we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And this guy, who everybody knew had been begging, stands up now starts to walk. He's leaping. He's jumping. He's been healed. Now, what's the point of that? The point of that is to give uh, validity, to verify their message. So the power of the Holy Spirit was at work to verify that message. We need the Spirit of God to be working to give validity to things which we say, to which we proclaim, and to which uh, we see happen as God does amazing things. Acts chapter 4. After this has happened, now we're back to the same kind of thing. Well, how did this come about? Who did this? How'd they do it? How did that happen? Sounds like the blind guy, doesn't it? And they make it clear as they're brought before the religious leaders. They make it very clear. This is by the power of the one you have crucified. He's the one whom God has raised up. They're not too happy to hear his name brought into the picture yet again. They're like, what are you bringing him back into the picture for? We had him killed so he wasn't a problem. Now you're out there preaching in his name. We can't have this. So now they begin to persecute. Now they begin to persecute them, and there's this religious resistance. Going to need some power to overcome that religious resistance so that we don't just cave in. You get to Acts chapter 6, on through Acts chapter 7, you wind up with some civil, I'll just say power against civil unrighteousness where they don't like the message that Stephen is bringing, and so what do they do? (laughs) They bring in some people to foment some lies about Stephen so they can then put him to death, which they do. And Stephen goes to death seeing a heavenly vision, and he testifies to what he is seeing. And yes, he dies. He is the first martyr in the church. But the Holy Spirit was there empowering him for what God asked of him. And he dies for the gospel, the first one we have recorded in that way. So we are going to need to have power to withstand civil unrighteousness. And friends, that may very well come in our day. We need to have power to discern and withstand the perversion of personal gain. When they got to Samaria, there was a one man by the name of Simon the Sorcerer. And he wanted to buy the power that was resident in them and with them so he could make gain from it. Now, is it not true? I I read that and I go, yep, 
Is it not true that we have people in this day and age who utilize God's name and the name of Jesus Christ for personal gain? It's always been the case. Read about it in Philippians 2. Paul ran into it. Or Philippians 1, I think it was. Ran into it then. It's always going to be the case. We don't want to go there. We want to understand that we're not in this for personal gain, for monetary gain. We're in this because God is revealing himself to people who are in darkness. Acts chapter 14, we need the power to overcome pride, don't we? Acts chapter 14. And we have this account when they're in Lystra that um, uh, they, a miracle is performed and then here's how the people respond. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And they're elevating these guys because of what has happened. Now imagine what that would be like. You're heroes. You're in, you come into this town, you do some miracles, you become a hero. Would it not be easy to be caught up in the pride of that? Hey man, it's easy for us to just caught up in the pride of our knowledge. It's easy for us to just begin to get caught up in this thing that says, you know what? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I know he is the truth, the way, and the life. I know he is the only way. I got this thing. And I begin to get proud about how I minister it to people and how I treat people and how I look down on people. I can do that. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up. And so we need the Holy Spirit to help keep us in check that our pride, when we have a little bit of success in ministry, that our pride doesn't take hold, that we understand success in ministry is because the Spirit of God has done something, not because we can, but it's there, friends. It's there. We need the power to discern the leading of the Holy Spirit through times of change. You look at, there's a well-known chapter in, Genesis, in Acts chapter 15, and, and here's what comes up for question. We got, now we got these Gentiles getting saved. They're coming to Jesus. They're putting their faith in him. Do they need to be circumcised? How does that fit in? Where do we go with that? They have an entire council that they bring together to discuss these kinds of questions. What do we do with these Gentiles? And there's going to always be this thing of trying to understand the application of the gospel in its current context. And we need the Spirit of God to lead us in that. And particularly with the direction that our culture is going, I think we need the Spirit of God to make sure we're just not following our culture. We're going, no, this, we need God to reveal to us from his word what is appropriate in these different areas. And here's one last one, and we could keep going. I just wanted you to see, this is all there in the book of Acts, that there is the power to withstand, that we need the Spirit to give us the power to withstand pagan unrighteousness. Because in Philippi, they ran across a girl who was uh, a, a slave girl, and she had demonic problems, and through her demonic problems, she would prophesy, and her owners would make money off of her. They finally got tired of her and how she was affecting their ministry. They cast the demons out of her. Now she's no good to her owners anymore to make money. And so now their owners are mad at them because this girl has been delivered from this demonic oppression. They get thrown into they get thrown into jail. Now God's going to deliver them. God's going to do amazing things again through it. But I just think it's interesting that while they're there in jail unjustly, 
uh, at midnight, they're singing hymns. All right? They're singing hymns. We need God to give us the power to live above the circumstances when, for the sake of the gospel, we have, uh, you know, we, we have been wrongly treated. So there are just some things, friends, that are in this book. I'm trying to encourage you. If you haven't read it in a while or if you've never read it at all, would you get into this book for a time? It well merits your reading it. And when you do, okay, I encourage you. I thought I'd go in this direction and it's like, nah, I'm not feeling that. Uh, when you do, make sure you get into this book with some form of a biblical map or two to help you understand it. It will, it will just open it up to you because and, and, there's so many places that they name and you go, oh, you can really see. They went from here to here to here to here to here. And then they came back. And then they went out again. And they went a little further. And then they came back. It all makes so much more sense. Now, let's get back to where we were. God's power is for God's purpose. God's purpose is that Christ be proclaimed. Now, friends, that's why we send people out, isn't it? And we have, uh, Heather was here earlier. Do we still have Lori, Lori with us? Lori? There she is right here, okay? Uh, they just came back from India. They were going to report to us last week about their trip to India. I don't know when it's going to fall to, but we're looking forward to seeing that, right? We send them out. They represent us so that Christ might be made known as they minister to people in difficult circumstances. Right now we have a family has two, two of their children are in the Far East, right? They are there making known Jesus Christ, proclaiming him. We are preparing, a, a team is preparing to go to Vienna yet this summer. There's a reason we're doing this year after year after year because we work with the, on site there with a group uh, that's been working in Vienna and in the parks there for many, many years. Ultimately, we identify with a, a young man or a man by the name of Gunter and Gunter has uh, a ministry there with um, CEF and we actually have somebody from CEF with us today see how I threw that right in there Carl Cross okay we're going to be meeting with Carl so if you see one strange face here okay you go I don't think I've ever seen that face here. greet that face okay say oh he, this must be the one he's talking about he's very good looking okay I don't mean strange in the sense of you know like Dustin like that's just a strange face I don't mean that I mean strange that I don't recognize it alright that's all that's all you greet Carl but anyways that's why we're sending people to Vienna. That's why there's a team this year that, if I understand, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to take any thunder. We got it. We maybe there's a team I believe might be going to Salt Lake City. Okay, all for this purpose, because the gospel was to move forward. There's to be progression. But it isn't just about going out there, because Jesus said, "You'll be my, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem." And we're here in our own Jerusalem. This is our Jerusalem. This is our locality. And we need the Spirit's power for here also. And let's think about this just briefly. Now we're wrapping it up. We need the Spirit's power for discussions around the dinner table where we're ministering to our kids and helping them understand this thing as what the, what the Christian life is like and what God is trying to accomplish, okay? And by the dinner table, I mean, of course, in proximity in our home. I cannot tell you how excited I am about the announcement Mandy made that there's going to be a class on parenting, okay? Because that's effectively, it, inter, it, it, just, it just interweaves with that, does it not? 
about how to live as, as Christians in front of our children and how to invest this in them. So that's magnificent. But we need to know how to live as believers in our neighborhoods. There are people around us that we're living with every day that somehow we need to know how God is leading us to be a testimony and a witness for Jesus Christ. And then we're in the office or in the warehouse on a regular basis and there's a place whereby God is going to bring people to us that need to hear why it is we believe in Jesus Christ and why we hold to him. Now, if we think that this whole thing is about going cross-culturally, and that's when we think India, Vienna, the Far East, and we, we hear people come back and talk about their cross-cultural experience, I don't think I'm too far off to say, just stay here long enough, and our culture is going to be foreign to our way of life. Because that's the direction our culture around us is going. And there's going to come a time when, you know, I, I don't know necessarily, are we going to be hated for the things we believe? Or will we just one day become so insignificant we'll be more just considered quaint? Right? Don't you? And I don't mean this in any way critical. Do not get me wrong. Do not misread me. But isn't it just kind of fun to see the Amish? in their carriages, and how they dress. You know they're good people. They're delightful people. They're kind people. They have some serious beliefs in God, and that's what's impacting that. And don't we think it's quaint? I wonder if that's what's going to happen with us. We're just going to be quaint in a culture that's foreign to us. And what do I mean? This last week, Lori said, asked me, and I, neither of, this is all secondhand, so you'll have to forgive me, but Lori said to me, did you understand that they, they passed a bill that says if a, an attempted aborted child is born alive, they can just let the child die? That doesn't fit our worldview, friends. That is not what we are about. Okay? But that's where our culture is going. Somebody else called me and they said, Gary, how do you raise somebody non-gendered? Because apparently... What he understood is Meghan Markle and her husband, Prince James, or whatever it is, whichever guy she's married to, uh, they've, de- they've made a public statement they're going to raise their child as non-gender. How do you do that? How do you do that? See, just think of the level at which that's just now, just, that's acceptable, and, and it's just going to become how you're supposed to do it. There's a lot of confusion going to come out of that, friends. A lot of confusion going to come out of that. I don't just mean in that family. I mean as our culture goes that way. But my point is being our culture will be a foreign nation to us in time. It's going to be cross-cultural ministry right here as this stuff continues to move forward. A couple other things that strike me, you know, is that whole evolution-creation debate. There's some exciting things going on in that world. Oh, man, I'm so excited by the stuff I'm hearing creationists come out with. Really, really fun. Uh, But... The world system isn't going to go down that route. There's always going to be this this disconnect. Radical socialism, I say radical socialism because of the stuff we're hearing right now, um, is going to be foreign to how we would live and how we would think. And uh, I say radical socialism because we already have socialism in some of its forms in what, where we live now. So that's here. And then here's one. I, I, think this, I just, just think this may be the religion of the Antichrist. Forgive me for saying that. I, it might be. 
I don't know how it all falls. I'm not claiming I have insight. But climate change, now we call it climate change. Okay, I can see that as the possibility of that becomes the one global thing. It's the one issue that affects everybody that the Antichrist can one day wage war with. And I have, I, I have no idea how much climate change is affected by man. I don't know. You can hear people on both sides. But I'm guessing it's going to come to a place where at some point we're going to say, can't follow you on that one, sorry. And we now do cross-cultural ministry around us because we are no longer a part of, of the cultural things that are here. Add to that, we're tempted to pride, power, personal gain, and even defeat, that we can get so discouraged trying to live this. What do we need? We need the Spirit's power. We need the Spirit of God to be at work in our lives so that we can carry out the purposes of God, that the proclamation of the gospel might go forward because God is intending that it would. So my friends, we have a magnificent responsibility or magnificent opportunity that is ours to make Christ known. But we can't do it on our own. We must always understand that God alone can change a heart. God alone brings new birth. God alone by his power, by the power of his spirit, can transform someone. Our task is to be witnesses to who Jesus Christ is and trust God to do that work. Father, thank you for the joy of being with these precious people. Again, we miss being away from one another, Lord. And, uh, and so we just ask your blessing upon us as we consider these final thoughts, Lord, that we might yield to the work of your Spirit and allow your Spirit's power to be revealed in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.